My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? This is why we did one song to start today, because there's just a lot to kind of pull this series together. Uh, This is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 30 through 32, and it says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Let's pray. Father, this morning we ask that you would teach us how to begin to be a people who forgive because we understand our forgiveness first from you, that we'd understand the vertical, what you have first done in our lives, and that would so change us internally that the horizontal of how we begin to live in one another's lives would reflect the grace that we have first been given that you would be glorified because we live in and understand what the gospel truly is and that results in change in our lives so that your people are truly your ambassadors in this world. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we are ending after 11 weeks this series on forgiven forgiveness. Uh, Much of today is going to take some of the previous weeks and kind of bring those together a little bit. Uh, If you haven't been here for any of these, like I keep saying, please uh, get the podcast or watch the YouTube videos of the previous weeks because it really all does go together. And if you don't know how to get a podcast on your phone or go to the YouTube thing, talk to Sarah at the Welcome Center. She will show you how to do that. Somebody handed her a phone a couple weeks ago. She didn't. She's like, oh, I got it. So she, she can figure it out. She's pretty smart like that. I keep telling you that this came about because six weeks before we were supposed to start The next series we're going to do, which I had written, and we're going to do that series next year, I read this book by Tim Keller called Forgive, and it impacted me so much. I thought, I've I've got to really talk to Element about this. So I talked to people on staff, and they said, yeah, you should do that. So essentially, I kind of plagiarized the book a bit. It was not exactly, but, but pretty close. And I think it's been really good for all of us because in places of unforgiveness, it leads to weakened ministries. It leads to avoidance of one another. It's really antithetical to what the gospel is. And we have given you different exercises throughout these weeks of things you can read or things you can do to try and focus better on what forgiveness is. We have even offered you mediators. If you and somebody else are having an issue, if you didn't know that, you can sign up for that at the Welcome Center this thing. I need a mediator. You can sign up and we will have an elder, a staff person, a volunteer meet with you and somebody else to help work through an issue if you need to do that. Now that doesn't mean if the other person doesn't want a mediator, you don't call us and have us show up. It's not you and some ammo coming along with you. It needs to be both of you like, yeah, we need a little bit of help here. And we would be willing to do that. So you could and still can sign up for that. As I said, today I'm going to give you lots of points trying to bring this together. I hope I don't lose you. This is why we put most of them on that back side of your sermon notes so it's all there. And last week I told you when Jesus is talking to his disciples in Luke 17, he says, you got to forgive wrongdoers 70 times 7 times, which is really indefinitely. And his disciples respond with this thing of, well, you're going to have to increase our faith because that sounds important. Possible. And that's the same thing that we feel. But this is why we keep talking about what the gospel is, the good news of Christ's death and resurrection for us to bring us back to himself. Because when we understand the gospel, it's going to give us the practices and resources for extending forgiveness. We have the practice of prayer. We have community around us. We have the scriptures. We have bearing each other's burdens. And forgiveness is not first and foremost going to be an emotion. Forgiveness many times is often granted 
granted before it is even felt. So forgiveness is a promise that we're not going to exact the price of sin from the person who hurt us. It's not about vengeance. And forgiveness is a promise that we will make despite our feelings. Many people believe, again, you have to feel forgiveness before you can grant it. You've got to feel less angry or less hurt. But if you wait to feel it before you grant it, you will most likely never grant it. You'll just keep sitting in that unforgiveness. You're going to be in a prison of your own resentment and anger. And so Jesus speaks how forgiveness really becomes an act of our will. In Mark 11:25, he says, if you are praying and you hold anything against anyone, you must forgive. Again, because this becomes a practice before it's a feeling. And I think there are certain things that we can do to work into this practice. First is this. Take an inventory of all the ways you could exact payment from an offender. You could cutting remarks, avoiding them, being cold to them, tearing them down in front of others. And each time you refrain from doing that, acknowledge that, okay, I held back, I didn't do that. And that's a really kind of a way to understand I'm going to pay down the debt. I'm going to absorb that cost a bit. Secondly, when speaking with the other person, you can be as courteous as possible. Not fake, like, oh, everything's great, but courteous. You could even say, you know, we still need to have that conversation. We still need to work through this, but you're courteous in the midst of that. Third, when talking about that person to other people, do not go out of your way to prejudice people against them. Now, it's obviously if there's something that's serious, like there's a sexual predator, you warn other people, but most cases are not as serious as that. Fourth, don't destroy the other person's reputation. And fifth, when thinking about the other person, when they come to mind, start to pray for them. Pray for them. Pray for you and them and what that relationship might actually begin to look like. Remind yourself of the cross and what Jesus did for you so that we would be those who understand that forgiveness is extended outward from us to other people. Now, in the very first week of this series, I told you we will only be able to do this when we understand two things. First off, spiritual humility. Ephesians 4.32, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. We were made by God. We owe him everything. But almost none of us, I would say none of us, love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. When something comes between what God calls us to do and what we want to do, we typically go with what we want to do. We have all rebelled. We've all run from God. So he comes and rescues and saves us. So we compare the debt we owe God with the debt anybody else owes us. And that leads to humility. Humility is a reminder that only God is qualified to judge. And the second thing that we have is spiritual wealth. People who are really rich in their experience of who God is and His love in Christ, we get to be generous with others. If someone takes advantage of you, yes, we can confront, we can seek justice, but we remember the wealth we have in Christ. If someone is poor and they don't know where their next meal is coming from and someone steals $5 from them, it can be very traumatic. But if you're worth $50 billion and you lose $5, it's not a big deal. Spiritually and emotionally, Christians who understand the gospel are like the wealthy, not the poor. If we understand the gospel, we have what we need to begin to forgive. Now, I want you to first open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. That's on page 525 if you use one of the Bibles at Element. And as you turn there, I'm going to show you this video from Brady. It's pretty short. Uh, Brady is the guy who did the very first video in the Forgive series. Brady is a newer believer. And after the series, I said, hey, you know, did you learn anything? And it's funny because when I first talked to him, he goes, oh, man, my, I'm thinking way different about it. And I throw him in front of the camera and he's like, uh, so anyway, this, this is uh, Brady's video at the end of the series. 
My name is Matthew Brady. I was the first guy uh, who was interviewed for this forgiveness series. You know, and Aaron had asked me to interview then and then to do a, a recap as well afterwards to kind of see, you know, how the progression was made. You know, looking back in the beginning on the first week, you know, my concept of forgiveness was uh, really based around what I know now to be the internal aspect of forgiveness, you know, how it benefits me or get forgiveness for my benefit. And now it's, you know, now understanding the difference between that internal forgiveness and the horizontal and the vertical, you know, a lot of it now for me is, is vertical. You know, that's where my focus needs to be. Really allowing myself to understand the forgiveness that I've received from Christ, accepting that, and then allowing that to be in, you know, involved in some way in the forgiveness that I give or get to others. I think the biggest thing or takeaway from me is that, you know, I'm not always going to find acceptance uh, within the people that I deal with, but as long as if I can find acceptance with God, you know, I'm going to be okay. If I can accept that forgiveness and forgive myself for what I've done, you know, through Christ, then so understanding Jesus' love for me helps me really love others more effectively, I feel. Just huge difference from where he started to, to where we are now. It's, it's pretty cool. So today I'm going to talk to you about two things. The first off is the truth about anger, which will be really short. Then we're going to spend the rest of our time talking about the truth about reconciliation. So in the Sermon on the Mount, which is people just love, it's, it's Jesus' you know, favorite teaching for a lot of people. We did a series on the Sermon on the Mount. It took us like 45 weeks to get through. You're welcome. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so uh, in this, when Jesus, before, right before he talks about reconciliation, he will talk about murder and anger and contempt and indifference. And Matthew 5, 21, this is what he says. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool, some of your Bibles will use the word raka right there because that's the actual word, will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, some people have argued Jesus here is prohibiting any type of anger. You cannot be angry at all, but that's not what he's doing because we know that God himself gets angry and God is holy and God is perfect. And so anger is not intrinsically sinful. What Jesus here is talking about is sinful anger versus anger, anger. And there is a difference. And you see this as he talks about it. First off, if your anger leads you to call somebody raka. Now, raka is a difficult word for us to translate. That's why some people just put you fool. But it really means you're inconsequential. You're demeaning the image of God in somebody else. You're tearing them down. That's what that word means. You're less than me. And if you do that in your heart, you are dismissing and disdaining and belittling. If you do it out loud, you are trying to punish and hurt somebody else. And so anger is supposed to be something that God gave us in order to defend something. We get angry to defend something. And so we should ask, when we get angry, what are we trying to defend? Because many times we think we're defending God or righteousness, but we're really, in the end, defending our own ego, our own pride, our own agendas, our own image. That's what we're defending, and that's sinful anger. You look at God's anger, it's always righteous because He is perfect love. His anger is always in the defense of the good. His anger is released to destroy evil, sin, and death. 
And so Jesus starts off in Matthew 5 here, and he gives instructions about reconciliation. But before he does, he warns us about sinful anger as a violation of the commandment that could eventually lead to murder. When we indulge sinful anger, we step onto a path. Yeah, it could result in murder. Most of the time it doesn't, but it really goes towards bitterness and grudges and hates. And this is why last week we talked about Jesus saying, Pay attention to yourself, what's really going on inside when these things happen to you. So Jesus warns about anger, and then he goes into Matthew 5, 23. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come offer your gift. So now we're going to talk about the truth about reconciliation. It's going to be very, very practical. Uh, later, Jesus will talk about that you pray for your enemies. You bless those who persecute you. And so really in here, you see a believer, you know, a fellow brother or sister, and then you see an enemy. And the first thing you should see here is Jesus does not give his hearers an example of when they get angry. Like he doesn't talk about anger and then say, and this is what you do if someone's made you angry. He says, this is what you do if you have made someone else angry. This is what we do. Jesus' disciples are to be concerned about stopping their own spread of sinful anger, but they should be no less concerned about when they make other people angry. And the second thing here is you should notice the urgency. If you're standing there offering your gift at the altar, you know, you're at church or here at the synagogue and you're offering your gift, what do you do? You get up and go take care of it. Now, this, this doesn't mean you actually have to do that. This is a principle. And what it means is there is an urgency in the midst of this. You don't let it sit. You don't let it fester. This isn't necessarily about doing it right now. It's don't procrastinate. Don't avoid making things right if you know there's a problem. Now, flipping your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. Depending on what Bible you're using, six, seven pages to the right, just Matthew 18. And Jesus will now speak about reconciliation when someone has wronged you. So you see all these things start to go together. Matthew 18, starting in verse 15, Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Okay, so here, a believer has been sinned against. The relationship now is broken from the other side. And Jesus says the relationship breach between two Christians is not just between two Christians because we're supposed to be a community. So it's not just these two people. It's the entire community that suffers when there's a breach, when there's a problem between two people in that community. And so you're supposed to be able to look to that community for the resources to help bring that divide back together. It is one of the reasons we told you that we were offering you mediators if you needed them in some of your relationship repair. So Jesus gives five steps here, and these are in your notes. First off, go privately. Go privately. You do not involve others First, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Now, again, this is a principle. If you are worried for bodily harm, if you go and talk to somebody, you don't need to go alone. You probably need to call the police if something like that's happening. But I would like to also add that that is not typically bodily harm is going to be an issue. This is when you have a problem with somebody else. On top of that, this is not in the scriptures, but I would also say don't text, don't write, don't email. Do it in person. Studies show compelling evidence today that people in the digital age are intimidated by going to another person in 
person. It is easy to refuse to answer a text or an email or read it the wrong way. That has never happened to you, right? Someone read your text or email the wrong way? No? Just me? Terrible. Confronting a person seeking relationship repair is complicated and it's delicate. Studies will tell you that 7% of our communication is done with our words. The actual words that you say. The other 93% is just a conglomeration of your tone of voice, of the way you look, your facial expression, your shrug of the shoulders, all of these different things coming together. And if only 7% are the actual words, why would we ever think a text or an email could work? It can't. It can't. You have to do it. And I get it. In our world today, it is so hard to do that. But if you want other people to see truth and love and justice and mercy, they have to see you. They have to understand why you're doing what you are doing. And so if it is at all possible, you go and you talk to them face to face before you ever talk to somebody else. And you go in such a way as not to embarrass them. Second thing we do is we go positively. Now, Jesus here, he says, when you point out their fault, in the Greek text, that is actually sharp, painful admonitions. But you have to understand the purpose is important. We are always going not to win an argument, but to win the person. We want people to come back and understand what they've done and what repentance truly looks like. So we persuade in order to restore or maintain a relationship. There's a multi-dimensional nature to forgiveness. So we must forgive inwardly like we started talking about. I always kind of begin that process before we go ask the wrongdoer to repent. Because if you go to a perpetrator who has hurt you in some way, before you start the process of forgiveness, you're likely to go not to regain your brother, but in order to tell them off or pay them back. So we go privately. Secondly, we want to go positively. The third thing you want to do is you might need to go repeatedly. Repeatedly, if necessary, the person you talk to might be challenged. They might be surprised. They might be defensive all at the same time. So you might need to do the process a couple times. For me personally, when I do something dumb, which happens all the time, uh, people will come and talk to me. The first thing I do is I want to defend myself. And I get a little upset. I'm like, you give me a day? And I'm like, yeah. You're right. I, but it takes me time to think about it. And I don't know if you're like that. So with me, it can't be one and done. It's a pressure. You got to go repeatedly through this. If you've been wrong, but your goal is love and restoration, there's a patience in that, that you have to understand. I want this person to come back. I want them to know what is really going on in me and our relationship. And so don't be surprised if someone gets defensive at first, but work through those issues surrounding your relationship. Now, if all those things are rejected, then Fourth, you involve the community. Now, it's warranted sometimes and wise to involve people in the Christian community. Jesus says, take one or two others, which means you still need to keep it as private as possible. Now, this isn't about cover-ups. This is about trying to protect one another. Jesus is being realistic because maybe your words aren't coming out the way you think that they are. Maybe you aren't saying the things you need to say. Maybe the perpetrator thinks you're not being objective. In the Old Testament, it always said you needed two or three witnesses in order to bring a charge against someone. Keller writes this, It behooves the person taking the initiative to make sure that the sin is not simply a matter of personal preference. The eventual involvement of one or two and then the church should minimize that danger. One or two others can actually help you refine your understanding of what happened. They could help you if you begin to speak out of turn or in an unhelpful manner. Two or three is more persuasive than one. But if that doesn't work, Jesus says, you tell it to the church. Okay, 
Now this phrase is as a last resort, and today we don't really understand what this means because when Jesus says this, synagogues were smaller, and even when the church started, they were home churches, they're smaller. It's not a couple hundred people. I have heard stories of churches when somebody messes up, they make them stand in front of the church, and there's people who don't even know this person, and they've got to confess all the things that they did. And someone's, you got people to know, just like, that's weird. Why do I need to know this? This is odd. And they make people start to do this thing in front of everybody. And it seems like when people do that, it's to humiliate or to shame or to punish somebody. And that's never our intent. Our intent is to restore. And so in context, this could be, you know, coming back to the elders or the leaders or different people in the church that knows that person and that they respect. That's probably more in line with what Jesus is talking about when it comes to this. Because again, we want to appeal and persuade. We never want to be in the middle of humiliation or shaming somebody or punishing somebody. It's that the offender might listen to the church, might listen to people so they would come back. Now, these are hard things. Matthew 5, Matthew 18 show that if a relationship is broken down, ready? It's always our move. Always our move to initiate relationship repair. How hard is that? How hard is that? Don't raise your hands. All right, we know it. Matthew 5, if your brother has something against you, go to him. Matthew 18, if you have something against your brother, go to him. Doesn't matter who started it doesn't matter. If we as Christians are working for God's good in the world as his ambassadors, we're responsible to begin that process of reconciliation regardless of how it began. Now, sometimes the perpetrator's wrongdoing is egregious with abuse and assault, and maybe the only thing you can do at that point is, again, call the police and have them haul off or something like that. But in most cases of relational breakdown, there's usually some things both sides can talk about. Both sides can confess and forgive, and this is hard. Jesus knows it's hard. It is the only way that we understand the gospel is what prepares us to begin to live this way. We have to understand what the gospel is, Christ's death and resurrection given for us to bring us back in, to reconcile us to himself. Only understanding that because the gospel humbles us up to know that we needed to be forgiven as well. And the gospel also affirms us to the place that God loves us so we can be honest enough in the places where we need to repent. Only the gospel brings this about. It is only great humility and great joy that will help us as the church, as a community, to keep relationships. Now, I want you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. And you can just look through this as I jump through these. But in Romans 12, Paul kind of does the same thing. Paul will talk about overcoming evil with good. And he will give us five ways to do that. Overcome, this word is a military word that means to defeat or conquer, which either means we will be defeated by evil or we'll, we will conquer and defeat evil ourselves by responding to it with good. And I, I don't know if I put this in your notes or not, but evil wins when it distorts our relationships with others. Evil wins when it distorts our understanding of who we are based upon what God has done. If we live in pity or self-righteousness, that's evil winning. There is nothing that makes you more open to being cruel than when you see yourself as better than somebody else. And evil wins when through us, we let perpetrators go on with their self-justification. If we do not defeat evil through forgiveness, evil wins in the world, in the perpetrators, and even in us. So here's five ways to overcome evil with good, moving towards reconciliation. I told you there's a lot of points. That's why I put them in your notes. First one is this, pray for them. Pray for them. Paul says, bless those who persecute you. 
Now, to bless can mean a whole lot of things, but it means to will the good for someone else. And that means you want to start to pray for them. You pray for God to bless them. It is hard to stay angry at someone when you're praying for them every single day. Whenever they come to mind, start praying. Oh, oh, Lord, cut their brake lines. No, 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 no one to do that, right? Just, oh, Lord, just have them repent, something, give me the strength. Whatever it is, you just start praying for them in that moment. Secondly, forgive them. When Paul says, do not repay anyone evil for evil, do not take revenge, do not, uh, but overcome evil with good, the essence of forgiveness is re, uh, turning away from the pursuit of vengeance against somebody else. So we do confront for the other person's sake, for any potential future victim's sake, for the gospel's sake, but not for revenge. To confront without revenge is part of forgiveness. Third thing is, don't avoid them. Romans 12, 18, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. If the other person is hostile towards you so you can't restore relationship, you don't need to contribute to the hostility. You can act kindly, helpfully, respectfully. You're always seeking the relationship. Fourth thing, give them what they need to whatever degree they allow. Romans 12, 20, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. If there is an opportunity to do something for a wrongdoer to meet their needs, do it. Now, in our culture today, we think, oh, that means I've got to, you know, let them run over me. No, it doesn't. Sometimes the help that somebody needs is a confrontation. Sometimes the help is a confrontation. It is never loving to make it easy for someone to go on sinning. And if you give them help in such a way that enables them to abuse you, you are failing to love them enough to want them to change. And so sometimes what people need, most people need, are boundaries. We, are, we have, find it so hard to put boundaries around our lives with people who want to abuse us. You have to put boundaries. I know someone who goes through a lot of things like this in their life, and they keep letting their boundary down and letting somebody back in. And I'm like, you need to keep that boundary because that's the best way to love that person, by leaving that boundary where it needs to be and saying, you know what? You cannot come around my family. You have to stay out there until you can get all that together. I'm going to love you. I'm going to pray for you. I will come to you if you need something from me, but this is the boundary. Fifth thing, we do it humbly. We do it humbly. Romans 12, 16 says we do it without pride or conceit. Forgiveness is a gift given by one sinful person, say by sheer grace to another. And if we have humility and love and have forgiven someone else, sometimes they may not like what you're saying, but hopefully in the end they will see that you care for them and you may actually be able to begin to help them. Now here's an interesting thing. In Luke 17, verses 11 through 19, it's a story where Jesus, he's traveling between the border of Samaria and Galilee. And 10 men who had leprosy meet him. And they stand at a distance. And they're yelling at him, Jesus, have mercy on us. So, Brian, uh, imagine this is you. Do this for me. Yell it. Say, Jesus, have mercy on us. You got to yell it. This is, what, this is what it would be like. Because they couldn't get near him. So, he'd be standing way away. And they'd be, hey, over here. Look it. Boils, not good, right? And they look at me, I need you to help me. And so Jesus looks back and he goes, probably nicer than that sounded, okay? Because I just sound like I'm yelling at somebody. But as they went, they're cleansed. Luke 17, verses 15 through 19. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? 
was no one found to return to give praise to God except this foreigner. And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. So people with leprosy, they need two kinds of healing. First off, physical healing, obviously. But secondly, they had been legally excluded from society. And so they had to go show themselves to the priest to be socially healed. The priest could put them back into the worshiping community. And one guy, one guy comes back to Jesus and say, thank you. And he's a Samaritan, which tells you that not all the people with leprosy were Jewish. You have Jews and Samaritans, and they hated each other. And yet, in their brokenness, in the place with leprosy, they became a unified people seeking help and helping from Jesus. In their brokenness and understanding of that, they became unified. This is how we become a humble people. We understand the gospel, that we all needed to be rescued and saved by Christ himself. Joel Green will even say, he goes, which priest did Jesus send them to? Because the Jews had their priests in Jerusalem. The Samaritans had their priests at Mount Gerizim. So where are they going? The, the guy comes back, throws himself at Jesus' feet. And he says, by returning to Jesus and receiving Christ's approval for doing so, he had figured out who the true priest actually was that Jesus is the ultimate priest, the sacrifice to end all atoning sacrifices. Jesus is the place that we find reconciliation to God, to others, and eventually to all things in creation. Colossians 1, 19 and 20 says, For God was pleased to have all this fullness dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. How do we live in humility with one another? We realize our condition and that Christ is the one who saves all of us. When Jesus dies on the cross, he responds to mocking with respect, to cruelty with love, to cursing with blessing, to evil with forgiveness and good. And in that, he overcomes evil. In Jesus, God takes the penalty of our justice upon himself. Now, an interesting thing, in Romans 12, 19, Paul will quote Deuteronomy 32, verse uh, 35, and God says, vengeance is mine. Vengeance is mine. When we see the cross, that puts a whole new spin on what those words mean. Because it reminds us the wrath of God that should have come to us for how we rebelled and ran away from Him came to Christ. Vengeance is mine. Romans 5 will tell you that salvation is technically defined as being saved by God from God and His wrath against sin, our own sin. The vengeance that was due us literally became his vengeance is mine. And if we want a heart for forgiveness that overcomes evil with good, a heart that doesn't feel superior and that doesn't need to justify itself, then we must look at Jesus taking the vengeance that was ours upon himself. Guys, no one learns to love or forgive by trying harder to love or forgive. Before love or forgiveness is something we give, it is something that we will receive. And so we learn to love and forgive by first experiencing it and then passing it on. Now, I almost ended this message right here, and, but there's a ton of stories that Keller tells in the Forgive book. I have not give you, given you really any of them, but I am going to give you one that I thought really worked well here, and it's a tough story. Uh, he tells uh, the story of Corrie Ten Boom. She's a Dutch Christian whose family hid Jews during World War II in the Netherlands when people were trying to escape Nazi occupation. If you ever heard of a movie or a book called The Hiding Place, this is that story. So eventually, her family is caught. 
and Corey and her sister Betsy were sent to Ravensburg concentration camp. Uh, Betsy dies, Corey survives. After the war, it's 1947, and Corey is going through Germany speaking to audiences about that through Jesus Christ, God has thrown our sins into the bottom of the sea. So at the end of one particular meeting, while people were leaving, a man comes towards her. She recognizes this man. He was a guard from Ravensburg concentration camp. And she remembers being stripped in a cold room, her sister and her being forced to walk naked in front of him. She said she could even picture her sister's emaciated body with her ribs sharp beneath her parchment-like skin. She remembers the whip hanging from this guy's belt. And now this guy is standing in front of her with his arm outstretched. And he says, a fine message, Fräulein. How good it is to know, as you say, all of our sins are at the bottom of the sea. That's my German. That's all I got. It's probably terrible. <laughs> anyway. But he didn't recognize Corey as being one of his prisoners, but she recognizes him. But it's interesting because he knew where he was and who his prisoners were. And you have this guy asking a Dutch woman, can Christ actually forgive my sins for all the things I did? And it's the first time she had actually met any of her captors. And she says this, the woman who had just given a speech about God's forgiveness kept her hand in her pocket. And I understand that. I really do. She didn't shake the guard's hand at first. Now, the guard begins to tell her all of his work at Ravensbrück. And she's probably thinking, yeah, I know about your work at Ravensbrück. But he talks about how he turned to Christ and sought forgiveness for all the cruel things I did there. So he's not trying to hide what he did. He is freely confessing these things. But it doesn't help her. Corey writes this, I stood there. Eyes who, I whose sins had every day to be forgiven and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he, he, could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? And then as she stands there, she goes, I remember what God has said about Christian forgiveness. She said she had seen so many people post-World War II that, who just couldn't forgive. And she said they remained, uh, remained their bitterness, keep them, uh, that through their bitterness, they remain invalids. Those were her words. She also said she knew that forgiveness is not an emotion first. It's an act of the will. So she said she silently prays, Jesus, help me. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. So she woodenly, mechanically lifts her hand and she puts it into the guard's hands. And this is what she says. As I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed, to, warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. I have never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Now, there are people who will see this and say, oh, that's scary. That's, that's not how we're supposed to do this. We can't forgive at that magnitude. But you also have to understand that this doesn't mean that if a tribunal came and arrested this guy that he didn't need to pay for his crimes or anything like that. What you see here is the fundamentals of Christian forgiveness. One, it's not optional. Two, it's an act of the will. And three, it requires divine help. It requires grace. It requires understanding the gospel. You know, Corey said that forgiveness is hard. And for me, I get it. Because when I hear this story, I go, I don't know if I'd be that merciful. But here's the beauty of what the gospel brings. God is that merciful. And this is why when we talk about, you know, Brady's video, that the vertical is so important. What God has first done for us. Last week I told you we can't allow ourselves to be twisted around our anger and our vengeance. And so we take what Jesus has done for us. We put our story of what others have done to us or we have done to others into the big story of what he did for us. 
And only then will we begin to live in places of trust and forgiveness. Only then will we have the power to start to grant forgiveness. And like I keep saying, it all comes back to understanding what the gospel truly is. The gospel of Christ's death in our place taking our sin upon himself, giving his righteousness to us as a gift. We are all a people who have run from God. And yet God came to restore relationship in himself. And only by understanding that will it ever lead us to be able to have that horizontal understanding of what forgiveness truly needs to look like. This is one of the reasons that Element, every week, we bring you to the place of communion. It is not something we pass through the room. It is something that you actually have to get up and do based upon what God is doing in your own heart and your own life. That's why you come and you break that cracker because Christ's body was broken for us. We dip it in the wine or the grape juice because his blood was shed for us. The vertical, God reached out to us first. God does the work first. That's where it always has to begin. But in understanding that, we have to understand our own fallenness, the places we have run from him. And that will lead us to that place of humility where we can begin to reach out to others who begin to need that forgiveness as well. And again, as I keep saying, forgiveness does not mean that there is not justice. But in forgiveness, we stop seeking vengeance and we want to see God's will done in ways that reflect His glory and His goodness. And so when we come to communion today, we lay down all that vengeance, all of that anger, and understand in humility that Christ has come to save us. If you need prayer today, right across the way in the lounge. You can go during music and go after service, but we would love to be able to pray with you if you're working through something like that. Maybe you don't understand why you first need to be forgiven by God and why that is so important understanding what forgiveness looks like. Well, they would love to talk with you. They'd love to be able to, to pray with you, to walk through these things with you. Uh, if, if you want to give, there's offering boxes on the side wall. You can give online. Element doesn't pass an offering plate because we believe our giving is meant to be in response to seeing God's generosity first given to us. So that's why we do giving the way that we do. It's always a response. God has been generous with us. We are generous as well based upon what he's done. Just as we live our lives in response to what the gospel is. How we change, that is a result of what the gospel brings. And this is why it's so important to understand truly what the gospel is. I encourage you to grab those sermon notes. If you are a first time here this week and you're like, well, this is a lot, uh, grab one of the binders outside and, and take that and look through all the stuff that's in there. We would love for you to be able to kind of walk through each piece of, of this series and come to the place where you understand what forgiveness truly looks like in a biblical sense. Because how the world and how I think a lot of the church speaks about forgiveness is not real forgiveness. It's burying our heads in the sand. And we need to look at what true forgiveness looks like because that brings glory to God and results from the gospel. And we want to be a people who are gospel-centric in all that we do. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would move us to remember what you have first done in rescuing us, that the vertical would become so real that our lives would change, that we would become humble, but also full of joy and assurance because of what you've done. And that we would in turn, then begin to reach out to those around us as your ambassadors, extending that same forgiveness that we have received to those around us. To understanding in many places the necessity 
for loving others enough to establish boundaries, for to loving others enough to establish what real justice looks like. But always coming back and centering ourselves in what our own great salvation looks like. And that you, ultimately through all of it, would be glorified as you use your people that you have redeemed to tell more people about who you are and express in practical ways what you have done and continue to do in us. And we do all that we do for your glory to worship and honor you because you are majestic and holy and gracious and good and loving and kind and generous and merciful and forgiving to your people. And so I ask that we would see why we need a forgiveness, the humbleness that that brings, then how we as your people are to begin to live. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.